Chapters 15 and 16 of Beautiful Joe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. Beautiful Joe by Marshall Saunders. Chapter 15 Our Journey to Riverdale every other summer the morris children were sent to some place in the country so that they could have a change of air and see what country life was like as there were so many of them they usually went different ways the summer after i came to them jack and carl went to an uncle in vermont miss laura went to another in new hampshire and ned and willie went to visit a maiden aunt who lived in the white mountains mr and mrs morris stayed at home fairport was a lovely place in the summer and many people came there to visit the children took some of their pets with them and the others they left at home for their mother to take care of she never allowed them to take a pet anywhere unless she knew it would be perfectly welcome don't let your pets be a worry to other people she often said to them or they will dislike them and you too miss laura went away earlier than the others for she had run down through the spring and was pale and thin one day early in june we set out i say we for after my adventure with jenkins miss laura said that i should never be parted from her if any one invited her to come and see them and didn't want me she would stay at home the whole family went to the station to see us off they put a chain on my collar and took me to the baggage office and got two tickets for me one was tied to my collar and the other miss laura put in her purse then i was put in a baggage car and chained in a corner i heard mr morris say that as we were only going a short distance it was not worth while to get an express ticket for me there was a dreadful noise and bustle at the station whistles were blowing and people were rushing up and down the platform some men were tumbling baggage so fast into the car where i was that i was afraid some of it would fall on me for a few minutes miss laura stood by the door and looked in but soon the men had piled up so many boxes and trunks that she could not see me then she went away mr morris asked one of the men to see that i did not get hurt and i heard some money rattle then he went away too it was the beginning of june and the weather had suddenly become very hot we had a long cold spring and not being used to the heat it seemed very hard to bear before the train started the doors of the baggage car were closed and it became quite dark inside the darkness and the heat and the close smell and the noise as we went rushing along made me feel sick and frightened i did not dare to lie down but sat up trembling and wishing that we might soon come to riverdale station but we did not get there for some time and i was to have a great fright 
I was thinking of all the stories that I knew of animals traveling. In February, the Drury's Newfoundland watchdog, Pluto, had arrived from New York, and he told Jim and me that he had a miserable journey. A gentleman friend of Mr. Drury's had brought him from New York. He saw him chained up in his car, and he went into his pullman first tipping the baggage master handsomely to look after him. Pluto said that the baggage master had a very red nose, and he was always getting drinks for himself when they stopped at the station, but he never once gave him a drink or anything to eat from the time they left New York till they got to Fairport. When the train stopped there and Pluto's chain was unfastened, he sprang on the platform and nearly knocked Mr. Drury down. He saw some snow that had sifted through the station roof, and he was so thirsty he began to lick it up. When the snow was all gone, he jumped up and licked the frost on the windows. Mr. Drury's friend was so angry, he found the baggage master and said to him, what did you mean by coming into my car every few hours to tell me the dog was fed and watered and comfortable? I shall report you. He went into the office at the station and complained of the man and told that he was a drinking man and was going to be dismissed. I was not afraid of suffering like Pluto because it was only going to take us a few hours to get to Riverdale. I found that we always went slowly before we came into a station, and one time, when we began to slacken speed, I thought that surely we must be at our journey's end. However, it was not Riverdale. The car gave a kind of jump. Then there was a crashing sound ahead, and we stopped. I heard men shouting and running up and down, and I wondered what had happened. It was all dark and still in the car, and nobody came in, but the noise kept up outside, and I knew something had gone wrong with the train. Perhaps Miss Laura had got hurt. Something must have happened, or she would come to me. I barked and pulled at the chain till my neck was sore, but for a long, long time I was there alone. The men running about outside must have heard me. If I ever hear a man in trouble and crying for help, I go to him and see what he wants. After such a long time that it seemed to me it must be the middle of the night, the door at the end of the car opened and a man looked in. This is all baggage for New York, miss, I heard him say. They wouldn't put your dog in here. Yes, they did. I am sure this is the car. I heard the voice I knew so well. And won't you get him out, please? He must be terribly frightened. The man stooped down and unfastened my chain, grumbling to himself because I had not been put in another car. Some folks tumble a dog round as if he was a junk of coal, he said, patting me kindly. I was nearly wild with delight to get with Miss Laura again, but I had barked so much and pressed my neck so hard with my collar that my voice was all gone. I fawned on her and wagged myself about and opened and shut my mouth, but no sound came out of it. 
It made Miss Laura nervous. She tried to laugh and cry at the same time, and then bit her lip hard and said, Oh, Joe, don't. He's lost his bark, hasn't he? said the man, looking at me curiously. It's a wicked thing to confine an animal in a dark enclosed car, said Miss Laura, trying to see her way down the steps through her tears. The man put out his hand and helped her. He's not suffered much, miss, he said. Don't distress yourself. Now, if you'd been a brakeman on a Chicago train, as I was a few years ago, and seen the animals run in for the stockyards, you might talk about cruelty. Cars that ought to hold a certain number of pigs or sheep or cattle, jammed full with twice as many, and half of them thrown out, choked, and smothered to death. I've seen a man running up and down, raging and swearing because the railway people hadn't let him get in to tend to his pigs on the road. Miss Laura turned and looked at the man with a very white face. Is it like that now? She asked. Uh, no, no, he said hastily. It's better now. They've got new regulations about taking care of the stock. But mind you, miss, the cruelty to animals isn't all done on the railways. There's a great lot of dumb creatures suffering all round everywhere. And if they could speak, t'would be a hard showing for some other people besides the railway men. He lifted his cap and hurried down the platform, and Miss Laura, her face very much troubled, picked her way among the bits of coal and wood scattered about the platform and went into the waiting room of the little station. She took me up to the filter and let some water run in her hand and gave it to me to lap. Then she sat down, and I leaned my head against her knees, and she stroked my throat gently. There were some people sitting about the room, and from their talk, I found out what had taken place. There had been a freight train on a side track at this station, waiting for us to get by. The switchman had carelessly left the switch open after this train went by, and when we came along afterward, our train, instead of running in by the platform, went crashing into the freight train. If we had been going fast, great damage might have been done. As it was, our engine was smashed so badly that it could not take us on. The passengers were frightened, and we were having a tedious time waiting for another engine to come and take us to Riverdale. After the accident, the train men were so busy that Miss Laura could get no one to release me. When I sat by her, I noticed an old gentleman staring at us. He was such a queer-looking old gentleman. He looked like a poodle. He had bright brown eyes and a pointed face and a shock of white hair that he shook every few minutes. He sat with his hands clasped on top of his cane, and he scarcely took his eyes from Miss Laura's face. Suddenly, he jumped up and came and sat down beside her. An ugly dog, that, he said, pointing to me. Most young ladies would have resented this, but Miss Laura only looked amused. He seems beautiful to me, she said gently. "'Because he's your dog,' said the old man, darting a sharp look at me. "'What's the matter with him?' "'This is his first journey by rail, and he's a little frightened.' "'No wonder. 
The Lord only knows the suffering of animals in transportation, said the old gentleman. My dear young lady, if you could see what I've seen, you'd never eat another bit of meat all the days of your life. Miss Laura wrinkled her forehead. I know, I have heard, she faltered. It must be terrible. Terrible? It's awful, said the gentleman. Think of the cattle on the western plains, choked with thirst in the summer and starved and frozen in the winter, dehorned and goaded onto trains and steamers, tossed about and wounded and suffering on voyages, many of them dying and being thrown into the sea, others landed sick and frightened, some of them slaughtered on docks and wharves to keep them from dropping dead in their tracks. What kind of food does their flesh make? It's rank poison. Three of my family have died of cancer. I'm a vegetarian. The strange old gentleman darted from his seat and began to pace up and down the room. I was very glad he had gone, for Miss Laura hated to hear of cruelty of any kind, and her tears were dropping thick and fast on my brown coat. The gentleman had spoken very loudly, and everyone in the room had listened to what he said. Among them was a very young man with a cold, handsome face. He looked as if he was annoyed that the older man should have made Miss Laura cry. "'Don't you think, sir,' he said, as the old gentleman passed near him in walking up and down the floor, "'that there is a great deal of mock sentiment about this business of taking care of the dumb creation. They were made for us.' They've got to suffer and be killed to supply our wants. The cattle and sheep and other animals would overrun the earth if we didn't kill them. Granted, said the old man, stopping right in front of him. Granted, young man, if you take out that word suffer, the Lord made the sheep and the cattle and the pigs. They are his creatures just as much as we are. We can kill them, but we've no right to make them suffer. But we can't help it, sir. Yes, yes, we can, my young man. It's a possible thing to raise healthy stock, treat it kindly, kill it mercifully, eat it decently. When men do that, I, for one, will cease to be a vegetarian. You're only a boy. You haven't traveled as I have. I've been from one end of this country to the other, up north, down south, and out west. I've seen sights that made me shudder, and I tell you the Lord will punish this great American nation if it doesn't change its treatment of the dumb animals committed to its care. The young man looked thoughtful and did not reply. A very sweet-faced old lady sitting near him answered the old gentleman. I don't think I have ever seen such a fine-looking old lady as she was. Her hair was snowy white, and her face was deeply wrinkled, yet she was tall and stately, and her expression was as pleasing as my dear Miss Laura's. I do not think we are a wicked nation, she said softly. We are a younger nation than many of the nations of the earth, and I think many of our sins arise from ignorance and thoughtlessness. "'Yes, madam, yes, madam,' said the fiery old gentleman, staring hard at her. "'I agree with you there.' She smiled very pleasantly at him and went on. 
I, too, have been a traveler, and I have talked to many great wise and good people on the subject of the cruel treatment of animals, and I find that many of them have never thought about it. They themselves never knowingly ill-treat a dumb creature, and when they are told stories of inhumane conduct, they say in surprise, why, these things surely can't exist. You see, they have never been brought in contact with them. As soon as they learn about them, they begin to agitate and say, we must have this thing stopped. Where is the remedy? What is it, madame, in your opinion? said the old gentleman, pawing the floor with impatience. Just the remedy that I would propose for the great evil of intemperance, said the old lady, smiling at him. Legislation and education. Legislation for the old and hardened, and education for the young and tender. I would tell the schoolboys and schoolgirls that alcohol will destroy the framework of their beautiful bodies, and that cruelty to any of God's living creatures will blight and destroy their innocent young souls. The young man spoke out again. Don't you think, he said, that your temperance and humane people lay too much stress upon the education of our youth in all lofty and noble sentiments? The human heart will always be wicked. Your Bible tells you that, doesn't it? You can't educate all the badness out of children. We don't expect to do that, said the old lady, turning her pleasant face toward him. But even if the human heart is desperately wicked, shouldn't that make us much more eager to try to educate? To ennoble? To restrain? However, as far as my experience goes and I have lived in this wicked world for seventy-five years, I find that the human heart, though wicked and cruel, as you say, has yet some soft and tender spots, and the impressions made upon it in youth are never, never effaced. Do you not remember better than anything else, standing at your mother's knee, the pressure of her hand, her kiss on your forehead? By this time, our engine had arrived. A whistle was blowing, and nearly every one was rushing from the room, and the impatient old gentleman among the first. Miss Laura was hurriedly trying to do up her shawl strap, and I was standing by wishing that I could help her. The old lady and the young man were the only other people in the room, and we could not help hearing what they said. Yes, I do. He said in a thick voice. His face got very red. She is dead now. I have no mother. Poor boy. And the old lady laid her hand on his shoulder. They were standing up, and she was taller than he was. May God bless you. I know you have a kind heart. I have four stalwart boys, and you remind me of the youngest. If you are ever in Washington, come to see me. She gave him some name, and he lifted his hat and looked as if he was astonished to find out who she was. Then he, too, went away, and she turned to Miss Laura. Shall I help you, my dear? If you please, said my young mistress, I can't fasten this strap. In a few seconds, the bundle was done up, and we were joyfully hastening to the train. It was only a few miles to Riverdale, so the conductor let me stay in the car with Miss Laura. She spread her coat out on the seat in front of her, and I sat on it and looked out of the car window as we sped along through a lovely country, all green and fresh in the June sunlight. 
how light and pleasant this car was so different from the baggage car what frightens an animal most of all things is not to see where it is going not to know what is going to happen to it i think that they are very like human beings in this respect the lady had taken a seat beside miss laura and as we went along she too looked out of the window and said in a low voice what is so rare as a day in june then if ever come perfect days that is very true said miss laura how sad that the autumn must come and the cold winter no my dear not sad it is but a preparation for another summer yes i suppose it is said miss laura then she continued a little shyly as her companion leaned over to stroke my cropped ears you seem very fond of animals i am my dear i have four horses two cows a tame squirrel three dogs and a cat you should be a very happy woman said miss laura with a smile i think i am i must not forget my horned toad diego that i got in california i keep him in the greenhouse and he is very happy catching flies and holding his horny head to be scratched whenever one comes near i don't see how any one can be unkind to animals said miss laura thoughtfully nor i my dear child it has always caused me intense pain to witness the torture of dumb animals nearly seventy years ago when i was a little girl walking the streets of boston i would tremble and grow faint at the cruelty of drivers to overloaded horses i was timid and did not dare to speak to them very often i ran home and flung myself in my mother's arms with a burst of tears and asked her if nothing could be done to help the poor animals with mistaken motherly kindness she tried to put the subject out of my thoughts i was carefully guarded from seeing or hearing of any instances of cruelty but the animals went on suffering just the same and when i became a woman i saw my cowardice i agitated the matter among my friends and told them that our whole dumb creation was groaning together in pain and would continue to groan unless merciful human beings were willing to help them i was able to assist in the formation of several societies for the prevention of cruelty to animals and they have done good service good service not only to the horses and cows but to the nobler man i believe that in saying to a cruel man you shall not overwork torture mutilate nor kill your animal or neglect to provide it with proper food and shelter we are making him a little nearer the kingdom of heaven than he was before for whatsoever a man soweth he shall also reap if he sows seeds of unkindness and cruelty to man and beast no one knows what the blackness of the harvest will be his poor horse quivering under his blow is not the worst sufferer oh if people would only understand that their unkind deeds will recoil upon their own heads with tenfold force but my dear child i am fancying that i am addressing a drawing-room meeting and here we are at your station good-bye keep your happy face and gentle ways i hope that we may meet again some day she pressed miss laura's hand gave me a farewell pat and the next minute we were outside on the platform and she was smiling through the window at us End of chapter fifteen our journey to riverdale
Chapter 16 Dingley Farm My dear niece, and a stout middle-aged woman with a red lively face threw both her arms around Miss Laura. How glad I am to see you, and this is the dog. Good Joe, I have a bone waiting for you. Here is Uncle John. A tall, good-looking man stepped up and put out a big hand, in which my mistress's little fingers were quite swallowed up. I'm glad to see you, Laura. Well, Joe, how do you do, old boy? I've heard about you. It made me feel very welcome to have them both notice me, and I was so glad to be out of the train that I frisked for joy around their feet as we went to the wagon. It was a big double one with an awning over it to shelter it from the sun's rays, and the horses were drawn up in the shade of a spreading tree. They were two powerful black horses, and as they had no blinders on, they could see us coming. Their faces lighted up, and they moved their ears and pawed the ground, and whinnied when Mr. Wood went up to them. They tried to rub their heads against him, and I saw plainly that they loved him. Steady there, Cleve and Pacer, he said. Now back up, back up. By this time, Mrs. Wood, Miss Laura, and I were in the wagon. Then Mr. Wood jumped in, took up the reins, and off we went. How the two black horses did spin along. I sat on the seat beside Mr. Wood and sniffed in the delicious air and the lovely smell of flowers and grass. How glad I was to be in the country what long races I should have in the green fields. I wished that I had another dog to run with me, and wondered very much whether Mr. Wood kept one. I knew I should soon find out, for whenever Miss Laura went to a place, she wanted to know what animals there were about. We drove a little more than a mile along a country road where there were scattered houses. Miss Laura answered questions about her family and asked questions about Mr. Harry, who was away at college and hadn't got home. I don't think I've said before that Mr. Harry was Mrs. Wood's son. She was a widow with one son when she married Mr. Wood, so that Mr. Harry, though the Morrises called him cousin, was not really their cousin. I was very glad to hear them say that he was soon coming home, for I had never forgotten that, but for him I should never have known Miss Laura and gotten into my pleasant home. By and by I heard Miss Laura say, Uncle John, have you a dog? Yes, Laura, he said. I have one today, but shan't have one tomorrow. "'Oh, uncle, what do you mean?' she asked. "'Well, Laura,' he replied, "'you know animals are pretty much like people. "'There are some good ones and some bad ones. "'Now, this dog is a snarling, cross-grained, cantankerous beast. "'And when I heard that Joe was coming, I said, "'Now we'll have a good dog about the place, "'and here's an end to the bad one. "'So I tied Bruno up, and tomorrow I shall shoot him.' Something's got to be done, or he'll be biting someone. Uncle, said Miss Laura, people don't always die when they are bitten by dogs, do they? No, certainly not, replied Mr. Wood. 
In my humble opinion, there's a great lot of nonsense talked about the poison of a dog's bite and people dying of hydrophobia. Ever since I was born, I've had dogs snap at me and stick their teeth in my flesh, and I've never had a symptom of hydrophobia, and I never intend to have. I believe half the people that are bitten by dogs frighten themselves into thinking they are fatally poisoned. I was reading the other day about the policemen in the big city in England that have to catch stray dogs, and dogs supposed to be mad, and all kinds of dogs, and they get bitten over and over again and never think anything about it. But let a lady or a gentleman walking along the street have a dog bite them, and they worry themselves till their blood is in a fever. And they have to hurry across to France to get pasture to cure them. They imagine they've got hydrophobia, and they've got it because they imagine it. I believe if I fixed my attention on that right thumb of mine and thought I had a sore there and picked at it and worried it, in a short time a sore would come, and I'd be off to the doctor to have it cured. At the same time, dogs have no business to bite, and I don't recommend anyone to get bitten. But, Uncle, said Miss Laura, isn't there a such thing as hydrophobia? Oh, yes, I dare say there is. I believe that a careful examination of the records of death reports in Boston from hydrophobia for the space of 32 years shows that two people actually died from it. Dogs are like all other animals. They're liable to sickness, and they've got to be watched. I think my horses would go mad if I starved them, or overfed them, or overworked them, or let them stand in laziness, or kept them dirty, or didn't give them water enough. They'd get some disease anyway. If a person owns an animal, let him take care of it, and it's all right. If it shows signs of sickness, shut it up and watch it. If the sickness is incurable, kill it. Here's a sure way to prevent hydrophobia. Kill off all ownerless and vicious dogs. If you can't do that, have plenty of water where they can get it. A dog that has all the water he wants will never go mad. This dog of mine has not one single thing the matter with him but pure ugliness. Yet, if I let him loose and he ran through the village with his tongue out, I'll warrant you there'd be a cry of, Mad dog! However, I'm going to kill him. I've no use for a bad dog. Have plenty of animals, I say, and treat them kindly. But if there's a vicious one among them, put it out of the way, for it is a constant danger to man and beast. It's queer how ugly some people are about their dogs. They'll keep them no matter how they worry other people, and even when they're snatching the bread out of their neighbor's mouths. But I say that it is not the fault of the four-legged dog. A human dog is the worst of all. There's a band of sheep-killing dogs here in Riverdale that their owners can't, or won't, keep out of mischief meek-looking fellows some of them are the owners go to bed at night and the dogs pretend to go too but when the house is quiet and the family asleep off goes rover or fido to worry poor defenseless creatures that can't defend themselves their taste for sheep's blood is like the taste for liquor in men and the dogs will travel as far to get their fun as the men will travel for theirs they've got it in them and you can't get it out Mr. Wyndham cured his dog, said Mrs. Wood. Mr. Wood burst into a hearty laugh. So he did, so he did. I must tell Laura about that. Wyndham is a neighbor of ours, and last summer I kept telling him that his collie was worrying my Shropshires. 
He wouldn't believe me, but I knew I was right, and one night when Harry was home, he lay in wait for the dog and lassoed him. I tied him up and sent for Wyndham. You should have seen his face and the dog's face. He said two words, you scoundrel, and the dog cowered at his feet as if he had been shot. He was one fine dog, but he'd got corrupted by evil companions. Then Wyndham asked me where my sheep were. I told him in the pasture. He asked me if I still had my old ram, Bolton. I said yes, and then he wanted eight or ten feet of rope. I gave it to him and wondered what on earth he was going to do with it. He tied one end of it to the dog's collar, and holding the other in his hand, set out for the pasture. He asked us to go with him, and when he got there, he told Harry he'd like to see him catch Bolton. There wasn't any need to catch him. He'd come to us like a dog. Harry whistled, and when Bolton came up, Wyndham fastened the rope's end to his horns and let him go. The ram was frightened and ran, dragging the dog with him. We let them out of the pasture into an open field, and for a few minutes there was such a racing and chasing over that field as I never saw before. Harry leaned up against the bars and laughed till the tears rolled down his cheeks. Then Bolton got mad and began to make battle with the dog, pitching into him with his horns. We soon stopped that, for the spirit had all gone out of Dash. Wyndham unfastened the rope and told him to get home, and if I ever saw a dog run, that one did. Mrs. Wyndham set great store by him, and her husband didn't want to kill him. But he said Dash had got to give up his sheep killing if he wanted to live. That cured him. He's never worried a sheep from that day to this, and if you offer him a bit of sheep's wool now, he tucks his tail between his legs and runs for home. Now I must stop my talk, for we're in sight of the farm. Yonder's our boundary line, and there's the house. You'll see a difference in the trees since you were here before. We had come to a turn in the road where the ground sloped gently upward. We turned in at the gate and drove between rows of trees up to a long, low red house with a veranda all around it. There was a wide lawn in front, and away on our right were the farm buildings. They, too, were painted red, and there were some trees by them that Mr. Wood called his windbreak, because they kept the snow from drifting in the winter time. I thought it was a beautiful place. Miss Laura had been here before, but not for some years, so she, too, was looking about quite eagerly. Welcome to Dingley Farm, Joe, said Miss Wood with her jolly laugh as she watched me jump from the carriage seat to the ground. Come on in and I'll introduce you to Pussy. Aunt Hattie, why is the farm called Dingley Farm, said Miss Laura as we went into the house. It ought to be Wood Farm. Dingley is made out of dingle, Laura. You know that pretty hollow back of the pasture? It's what they call a dingle. So this farm was called Dingle Farm, till the people around about got saying Dingley instead. I suppose they found it easier. Why, here is Lolo coming to see Joe. Walking along the wide hall that ran through the house was a large tortoise shell cat. 
she had a prettily marked face and she was waving her tail like a flag and mewing kindly to greet her mistress but when she saw me what a face she made she flew on the hall table and putting up her back till it almost lifted her feet from the ground began to spit at me and bristle with rage poor lolo said mrs wood going up to her joe is a good dog and not like bruno he won't hurt you i wagged myself about a little and looked kindly at her but she did nothing but say bad words to me it was weeks and weeks before i made friends with that cat she was a young thing and had only known one dog and he was a bad one so she supposed all dogs were like him there was a number of rooms opening off the hall, and one of them was a dining room where they had tea. I lay on a rug outside the door and watched them. There was a small table spread with a white cloth, and it had pretty dishes and glassware on it, and a good many different kinds of things to eat. A little French girl called Adele kept coming and going from the kitchen to give them hot cakes and fried eggs and hot coffee as soon as they finished their tea mrs wood gave me one of the best meals that i have ever had in my life end of chapter sixteen dingley farm